Hi, this is Andrew Mitchell, Director of Photography for American Horror Story Double Feature, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Andrew Mitchell, Director of Photography for American Horror Story Double Feature. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to talk to you about this show. I am such a huge fan of the American horror, really all of it, American crime story, American horror story. I just love the the entire like catalog of work in that whole production company. It's just, it's just so great. And I can't wait to talk to you about it because this season is unique and awesome and there's so much to discuss. But before we get there, I want to quickly mention our sponsor for today's episode, MZ Empowering Filmmakers. And of course, remind you all to follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Uh, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, Andrew, once again, welcome to the show. We've been covering American horror stories and American crime stories for years now. This franchise just keeps getting bigger and bitter, bigger and bigger and better. Um, it, have you been involved in this franchise for a while, or is this kind of new for you? Uh, the American Horror Story franchise. This is kind of a, this is a new thing for me. I, I did several days when Ryan Murphy wanted to do some music. He brought me in because he knew me from Glee as a camera operator. Um, but this is my first big step into that world. I've done this the American Crime Stories series, and have been with Ryan Murphy TV since um, 2008. So I'm connected to it. But this show, um, not so much this one. It, it must, now from just a very outside perspective as just a viewer and somebody that enjoys the Ryan Murphy universe, it does seem like you guys are a really tight-knit family and, and you tend to use the same people, mm -hmm. you use the same actors, same crew. It seems like kind of a unique way of running a production company. Is that the case? Or is this kind of the way all production companies run, but it just doesn't have that same branding? Oh, I would say you hit it on the head there. Um, Ryan Murphy is very loyal to those that have been with him and stayed with him and produced good work. So um, he's definitely been loyal to me in terms of bringing me on. In fact, we would he would used to shift us from all of his starting pilots, you know, my crew. And uh, and so that was a privilege. And, you know, we spoke um, a while back and and, uh, you know, I shared an interest in um, doing more DP work. And, uh, you know, so he made that happen through Ratchet and uh, a little bit of Hollywood and then and then this show. Now, I want to talk about that specifically, because like you just said, I, I was looking at your IMDb and I see, you know, over 50 credits in the camera department. But as a director of photography, you were mentioning before the show, American Horror Story Double Feature is your first time DPing an entire series. So that, first of all, congratulations. And I'd love to talk to you about that journey. How did you kind of make that jump? Um, well, I've been in, I've been in television, mostly television for a very long time, a few features here and there. Um, but I probably have, um, you know, you mentioned 50 credits, but those include like TV series that have 121 episodes, you know, and probably close to 500 episodes of TV, hour long episodes of TV. And got into this position of being a camera steady cam and making things happen in that world. Um, very privileged to get the opportunities that I've had, um, done some great projects, um, you know, been recognized for some of those. And so at a certain point though, you, you wear the, you wear the steady cam rig long enough. And, uh, uh, anyway, I just, I just went to Ryan and said, Hey, is, you know, is there room for advancement here? I'm getting up there in age and, uh, not that, there's people out there that can run the steady cam at all ages, but I've kind of made the decision like, Hey, maybe let's transition to uh, director of photography give me some more creative opportunities, um, some new challenges. And, uh, I went to him and I, and proposed it and, and he was open to it and he made it happen. Now, is that, is that typical? Like, is this a traditional typical story for DPs to have come up through camera operation? Um, yeah, I think so. You know, typically you would have, <clears throat> um, you know, on a show 
uh, at least a television show, you would break off your A camera operator to become your second unit DP sometimes. Or sometimes it's the C camera operator that the DP has brought in specifically to break off and do second units. Um, so I don't think that is such an odd idea to, to have an operator that transitions. Um, in the Ryan Murphy world, it was definitely a, a, um, a loyalty thing, you know, from him mm -hmm. that he wanted to um, pay me back for uh, many years of, of service in his world. I love hearing that. I mean, it just seems like such a great guy to work for. And it, 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 I don't know, I just, it like warms my heart to know that that kind of loyalty still exists in the production world. That makes me very happy. <laughs> now you did say that you got a couple of opportunities with individual episodes. Like you said, you got an opportunity in Ratchet to one episode as a DP, but yeah. this is your first full series. And what a series to begin with, because it's really two. It's yeah. two totally different stories. And as it's named, American Horror Story Double Feature, it's because there's two different stories going on that I'm hearing align eventually in the end. And we just cannot wait to find out how those things align. But talk to me about that, the difference now. As a director of photography, going into your first series, what are some of the big differences that you now you know, experienced or things that you have to deal with that you didn't have to as a camera operator? Well, the biggest thing for me is um, there's so much prep work and off the clock time that you spend. Um, you know, as an operator, you can read the, read the story. Uh, you, can, you can prep ideas for that and so forth, but most of that happens on set, you know, while you're creating shots or um, delivering shots. But as a DP, you're thinking weeks in advance for equipment. You're thinking uh, stylistically, you know, what you need, uh, filtration, you're figuring out locations, you're figuring out just so many of the details, um, which, which I kind of had a, an idea about, but I didn't know how huge that was. You know, there's, at the end of the day, there's a whole, you know, thing about what, what's next, what's tomorrow. What's the next day? What's next week? Um, so in terms of like your, your thought pattern, it's the DP's mind, I think is just exploding with information and giving information, taking information, processing all of that. Whereas an operator, you show up, you make some cool stuff and then you go home and you don't think about it. <laughs> it also seems like from that description that a camera operator can be maybe more in the moment because you're not worried about the next episode so much. Did you find that to be the case? Um, oh yeah. Yeah. You can definitely be in the moment, uh, as an operator and, uh, um, your focus is different, right? With the DP, it's like you're do you're doing one thing and then, you know, somebody from production design comes and asks about a set for next week or, you know, or, or you get a call from dailies or something or, or, or something didn't color right. So you're dealing with that during the day. So there's, there's a lot of distractions um, and you can, you can compartmentalize that, you know, you can put that into lunch, you can put that before work or after work, but there's um, definitely the operator can live in the moment. Um, but I, I like, to, there, I, I do that as well as a DP, you know, I can compartmentalize and, and push that off, you know, push the exterior questions. And well, so that forth. seems like a skill you need to have. If you have all these people and all these department heads gnawing for your attention while you're doing something else. I mean, you, you, you have to be able to balance that. Um, it, well, I guess, how do you? I mean, now, now the more I think about it, it's like, yeah, I, I do a ton of commercial work and there's oftentimes it's one or two days. It's not anything that lasts for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. So um, how do you balance being able to focus in the moment and make sure that the, the task of the day is getting done but also answering questions about tomorrow or the week after. At the beginning of the day, when you're starting out, it's, it's, you're living in the moment. You're, you're figuring out what the current, you know, the current setup, the current scene, the timing, the, you know, actors availability throughout the day, you're making a plan, but then there are going to be moments where you get into a lighting setup and you've given out your assignments or whatever. And then you can be like, okay, I can break for 10 minutes and think about the equipment we need for, you know, next week's shoot in Lancaster, you know, yeah. so you can kind of 
you know, divvy it up. And then at the same time, people will come up to me with questions and I'm like, not now, sorry, come back to me later. Um, Was to- there something that you missed when, you know, being the director of photography for this series and just coming off of just basically a whole career of operating, uh, of operating, was there something you missed about operating? Oh yeah. <laughs> like what? I, lo- I love operating. I love to move the camera. I love to feel, I love to feel the motion of the camera connecting with the scene. Um, and I had, I had um, my A camera dolly grip on the show, Corey Corona, working with our A camera operators. And uh, cause we had, we had a few. And so there was actually an opportunity. We were shooting uh, the alien ship crash and president Eisenhower is inspecting it. And it was a, it was like a COVID shutdown day. So mm-hmm. we get there, it's out in Lancaster. It's hot. We have techno crane. We have, you know, um, all this alien stuff spread across the field. And all of a sudden the COVID team starts pulling out people. It's like, Oh, this operator contact tracing. And then oh, this no. operator, contact tracing, this first assistant, contact tracing, this operator. So we have three cameras. So all three of my operators got pulled. Two of my first assistants got pulled. Two, we got our, our digital utility got pulled. Our, um, um, I think our loader got pulled. Anyway, we were left with like five wow. people. So I got to jump on the Technocrane and I had a fantastic day. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love the Technocrane. And so we had an awesome day. Um, my... Uh, uh, my usual first assistant, Penny Sprague, got bumped up. You know, this is all we're calling into the to our local and like, hey, this is happening. We need to bump up people, and they're like, okay, go ahead. Um, so anyway, we finished out the day, and everybody kind of moved to different positions. But I got to get back on the camera, which I really love. Is COVID exposure like the new way of a career advancement? <laughs> so like basically, actually, the DP has COVID exposure. Um, I'm going to need to take over for you today. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, I'll tell you what, it really, it really helped a lot of people's careers. <laughs> I can imagine. At least, I can on our, imagine. at least on our show, you know, because people would get pulled and then it's like, okay, union says you can, you can bump up to, you know, our camera PA, you can bump up to digital loader, which is like, okay, there's one out of 30 days. So, Jesus, well, there's, there's a silver lining, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there is a silver lining for sure. <clears throat> so you love operating. You've done it for your whole career. How do you, or there must've been moments where you're watching a scene and you're thinking to yourself like, Oh, I I just, I just want to get behind the camera and just do it because sometimes it's harder to explain what you want than it is just to do it. And did you ever have those moments? Uh, you could ask my operators, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, I love being behind the camera. I'm very specific about what I like. Um, um, we're all on radio. We don't do the, we don't do the comm system, but we do radios. And so, um, I would try to give notes between takes occasionally during a take, which I know as an operator, we all hate. Um, but yeah, I feel, I have that, I have that feeling just because of, um, yeah, um, having done it for so long, I know exactly what I would, what I would like. So, and they, and they, and the operators were, were patient with me in terms of, um, you know, my notes and, and so forth. I think we, I think we got into a groove there, but yeah, I miss, I miss being behind the camera. Well, I imagine that being an operator will only make you a better DP. I mean, it seems like those skills are really valuable. Do you feel that that's the case? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, here's the deal with that. It's like, as a, as an operator, if you, like it's always great to wear somebody else's shoes. You know, it's like, if you can be an operator and DP a day, then you kind of get it, you know, why your DP acts and, and does things a certain way. Um, and, and, and if you could be a director for a day, you, then you'd know, Oh, why is the director like rushing us on this or that, you know? So wearing somebody else's shoes really is, uh, you know, in terms of what, what they're dealing with and knowing like, you know, cause as an operator, I'd be like, oh man, why won't he just move that light? Cause you know, I'd really like to make my frame here or whatever. And then you become a DP and you're like, that's the only place the light can go. There's no other place, you know? Mm. Um, mm. Or you have an actress who's very specific about her lighting and it's just like, no, this is how it is. Tighten the frame, you know? So um, 
I don't know if I answered that question about. <laughs> you answered a question. I don't even remember yeah. what the question was. So we're fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, now I forgot. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you is <clears throat> we're talking to um, a lot of like young and new filmmakers that are just kind of coming up in the ranks as well as some pros out there as well. Um, but, and we're all kind of learning from each other's experience. That's the point of the show. What do you think are the skills that a director of photography really needs to have, really needs to hone to be their best? And asking you this question at this time in your career is really interesting because you yeah. just made that jump and I'm sure you must have learned a lot in this process. Yeah. So before the series, I connected with, a, with several mentors and I asked them the same question. So reviewing back, um, uh, they said, uh, let be yourself. So what, you know, do what you think you should do. Like, don't try to copy anybody. Um, they said, make your day. So finish the work at hand, um, which sometimes means compromising, you know, um, they said, you know, good attitude, positivity, you know, is, um, super helpful. I should, I should pull those notes out, but in terms of, you know, in terms of what I've learned, um, I mean, those are all, those are all great things. You know, and, and in terms of being being a first time DP, I'm trying to think back like what, you know, for up and coming DPs, you know, myself included. Well, I can imagine, and it, correct me if it's wrong, but I can imagine that communication has got to be so much more difficult simply because, in order, like like we were mentioning before, in or like because you've been able to just do it for so long, now being able to articulate what it is that you want someone else to do and hope that they give you what you're asking for has got to be hard. That just being able to explain something like that is tough to do. I mean, that's what I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I'm not very good with my words, but I'm good with visuals, so, and sound effects. You can ask my people about that. I'll make sound effects to describe shots. Like what? Um, now you gotta give us one. You, know, you gotta give like, us one. You know, the camera's gonna go, it's gonna <laughs> You know, it's gonna look at the end. <laughs> or you know you're gonna go boom <laughs> so and, like, and they get it you need they a little foley machine on set yeah yeah exactly i do um so but communication yeah that i mean that can be uh that's key you know and a lot of times it's just like let's get a let's get a an artemis phone out or let's get a finder out um and you know let's look through the visuals um my descriptions of things don't always line up, you know, me and my gaffer, it, it would, it, I had to choose my words wisely, which I often didn't, you know, where, where I'd be like, um, you know, let's make that light hotter. And it would be like, I'm thinking brighter and he's thinking warmer, mm. you know, like, oh, let's go 3000 Kelvin instead of 32, you know? And so I have to, you have to pick your words um, specifically. So communication is, is actually a huge, huge, huge um, characteristic for, um, explaining things clearly, um, it, which makes it more efficient, you know? Absolutely. Let's dive into the series. I want to talk about, you know, how it sure. looks, the decisions you made, cameras, lenses, all of it. So let's begin, first of all, with an explanation to the audience that, you know, may or may not have seen the show. We had mentioned earlier, it is two different, two different stories kind of put yeah. together. It is truly a double feature. I think the first one is six episodes and takes place in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And the other one is four episodes that takes place in Albuquerque, New Mexico, right? Um, uh, yeah. Or I guess partially. Um, yeah. but somewhere, somewhere in the desert. <laughs> exactly, in the desert. Um, but there's two different stories going on, two completely, well, three completely different looks because in part two, there's kind of present day in the past. Yep. But let's start with the first part, which is the Provincetown part. Um, part one is called Red Tide, I believe. Yeah. And the first thing you notice from the very first frame is this is completely devoid of color. It's not black and white, but it is drained of all of its color, except for a couple instances that we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. But- that look was just so striking and so interesting and so cold and scary in its own way. Talk to me about the color palette of part one and how you got there. Okay. Well, I'm glad you mentioned cold because when Ryan Murphy pitched the uh, concept, 
he wanted the colors to be cold, gray, and pewter. So mm. we took that um, and we went with the, obviously a desaturated look. Um, we went towards the, the blues and grays. Um, our production designer, Chloe Arbiter, um, came up with some you know, production layouts and photos and things of our sets with that color palette attached. We had um, executive producer, John Gray, guiding us through and approving, you know, colors and such for woods and paints and so forth. And so that's just kind of what we went with. And I got with our, our final colorist, Jeremy Sawyer at Light Iron, and we created a LUT that kind of fit that pattern. You know, we mm -hmm. did a couple of tests um, and adjusted that LUT for, you know, for the show. So we had essentially, um, we had essentially one LUT to rule them all for the first, the first half. And, you know, it's a, it has a little bit of contrast to it. Um, it has some, it has some, um, some dark blacks to it. It, um, anyway, that was the idea of this whole desaturated look except for the color red. So yes. the color red was supposed to be vibrant. Um, it was supposed to stick out and within, within that whole world of this desaturated cold look, each of the, each of the locations, which, which I pitched originally were, should have their own look within that same world. So the gardener house is the most neutral of, of all the sets, you know, that's like the home base neutrality, um, cold, white, whites, that, that kind of thing. And then you could move on to the Muse restaurant, which has a little bit of red, some little red candles when they perform the songs that's under a red light. Um, when, and the Muse, which is also the name of the pill in the show, um, has that red, red motif. Um, our warmest set would have been Bells, which is one of the kind of the pill pushers. And she's got candlelight. And so that was almost the warmest um, we could get, but still has a somewhat of a desaturated look. Um, like Mickey Shack, which I enjoyed them as was one of my favorite um, sets, which was a tiny little set. Um, I, for some reason, I kept calling that dark chocolate for some reason. That was the look. Why? <laughs> I don't know. It just felt like there were these dark browns in it. Um, and, and the, the color, was, you know, the color coming in the window was cool, yet he had some warmer lights inside. So essentially in, in our lighting design, it was um, interior lights, tungsten lights, which are, you know, anywhere from like 2,400 Kelvin to like 2,800 Kelvin. Those lights were supposed to be just warm of neutral. So if you shot at 3,200 Kelvin, those lights are going to look very warm. So we, sh we shot the entire series of well, interior 3000 Kelvin, so that it brought that in a little bit. Um, some of the tungsten lights we would gel, you know, we would add a little blue to them to bring them closer to that palette. So I would say our palette was, you know, somewhere in between like, you know, in final, it's probably somewhere in between like 2800 Kelvin and 3500 Kelvin is our cool side, right? Mm -hmm. So, so the idea was uh, interior lights are um, just warm of neutral, um, daylight is just cool of neutral and, and even night was just a touch cooler than day, you know, so that mm. the, the color palette was just like squash, like, you know, like, eh, I don't have my screens not that big, but if this is a full color palette, we try to squeeze it, um, into a tighter range of, you know, like Kelvin temperatures and so forth. Yeah. So, um, anyway, and then I pushed for like, when they were at the grocery store, I was pushing to go like, this like pukey green kind of look to have a, you know, a look. One of the things is when I talk with our colorists, I'm like, if we're going to do a look, let's not go halfway. You know, mm -hmm. like, let's make it look like a look and not like, Oh, that day was like cloudy and there was no color. Like, sure. let's make it, let's make it stick. And so I was pushing that for the, um, for the grocery store, but um, post-production didn't like it that green. <laughs> so we pulled back, they gave us, they gave me a little bit, but they pulled back on that, which, which is fine. Um, and then when we shot, when we shot Ursula, who comes from California, when we shot California, that was full color. And then when she came to Provincetown, she still remained colorful. If you watch, she has a little bit more color than everybody else. So um, that was just- Now what not. is that? What yeah. does that limited, you know, like your, your little graph here, what, what does that 
limited color temperature do for skin tones when you know you still need to make people look good i mean yeah. it is american horror story yeah. um so there's even kind of like a sexiness in the in the evil in that show there's yeah. just something you know they've got good looking people you want them to look good yeah how do you how do you balance that uh, that was super tricky <laughs> because okay so here's the deal is like uh finn whitrock has a natural pinkish tone to his face. Um, Lily Rabe is, has a very fair porcelain kind of looking face, right? Mm. Um, Leslie is um, a warmer tanner feel. Our young girl was like uh, almost beach tan. And so having all of these different facial tones and then putting them in the same scene, and then putting our our uh, our LUT on there made it like, w why does everybody look so different, right? Mm. So we had to play with that a little bit, and they um, they adjusted makeup just a touch, um, but that was tricky because when you're putting a LUT on um, certain colors, you know, and bringing down reds or or, or uh, crushing certain colors, it, it and actually it became a little bit of an issue, but um, we took care of it in in uh, in final color anything that was like, like grossly out. But a lot of it was just pulling down. Since we wanted the reds to pop, we had a little push on the red, which made it difficult to bring Finn's um, more warmer tones in his skin down. So mm. we had to adjust that later, you know, because of that LUT, we had to pull that back on on his scenes or just window his face kind of a deal. So that, that I mean, honestly, that's a really good question because that was a major... Uh, a major concern, you know, and we, we, and we can color balance a little bit with our lights to adjust. We did a little bit of that as well. There's always going to be finish work, but it seems like, you know, I'm talking to DPs almost every week for the show. It seems like there's this trend in trying to make the, the look in camera as real as possible. It, it seems like people are almost pushing away from the reliance on posts so much because they want more accuracy on set. And you know, I'm, I always kind of have that in the back of my mind when I'm when I'm talking to people like you. Is like, how how much does it look like the final video while you're on set? Um, we try to get as close as we can. Yeah. Here's the deal with Ryan Murphy TV is at least in my experience, the cut that he watches is a dailies cut. Really? So our dailies have to be as close as possible. <laughs> Cause wow, he doesn't okay. watch it. He watches the dailies cut. There's no, there's no like, Oh, let's edit it and throw it to color and then show him. He'll watch the dailies cut. So wow. we have to be spot on. And so when we were, when I was working with our dailies colorists, um, I think we had four, I was very specific and they're like, yeah, but you can take care of that in final. And I'm like, our boss watches this before final. We have to get as close as possible. So I would say there was a huge effort on set to make it, you know, proper uh, final look, but then obviously there's some color at the end. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm always thinking of that skin tone, you know, set design. Because when you have a wide spectrum of color in your in your look, I mean, what you've seen in Hollywood, actually, a lot of Ryan Murphy stuff is super colorful, and you can yeah. you can really allow everything in there. But when you narrow it, it anything that's colorful really pops out. Like you, it really sticks out like a sore thumb if the color isn't spot on. Um, so I imagine that was a bit of a challenge for you. And also you are creating kind of the, a lot of people that don't experience all four seasons or that even really know the Northeast except for the summertime, you don't realize that the beach communities up here in the Northeast, I'm in Boston, are bleak during the winter. Like they, it's a totally, totally different vibe during the winter than it is during the summer. Have you had experience up in the Northeast during the winter in these beach communities prior to, to really understand? Uh, I'm trying to think about that. So I was raised in Maryland, but that's not mm. Northeast. Um, have I been up there? I'd been to Boston in the winter before, but not really, not really a beach community. You know, oh, I think you uh, nailed we it. referenced, we referenced, um, thank you. I, we, you know, we referenced photos and things like that. Our, um, exec producer, John Gray, you know, loaned me a book of, uh, I think it was Provincetown photos, you know, in the winter and so forth to kind of match up. And then, you know, we made that look and it, and it was kind of, it's kind of bleak. We shot in February and February was rather bleak. We had some chilly, chilly days and then we had some sunny days. So 
I mean, honestly, I was praying for clouds because that was, that was our look, you know? So we had fogged in days that had to cut with sunshine. So that was also a trick. Um, Did you do any on-set work there? Like was the house a, a built set or were you in Provincetown the whole time? Um, oh yeah. And in terms of the, of the sets, the Gardner yeah. house, the Gardner house was on stage at Fox. Bells was on stage at Fox. Uh, the Muse restaurant was on stage at Fox. Mickey's, pretty much all of the interiors. All the interiors. Uh, so your exteriors we were actually in Provincetown. Yeah, the exteriors were in Provincetown. And so that, um, you know, that brought up some tricks later. But uh, yeah, and what a city to, to shoot. It's, it's amazing. You know, it's beautiful. Some of the drone shots any drones got us was, were amazing. And, you know, I thought... I thought we uh, did a nice little promo for P-Town for sure. Let's take a quick moment and talk about MZ empowering filmmakers. Now, MZ is basically the Netflix of filmmaking education. And when you go to MZ, you are faced with hundreds of hours of high quality video-based filmmaking education that covers all the things we need to know about here, uh, like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. And of course, there's two components to it. You've got great courses and great instructors. Uh, instructors. So first of all, courses. One of their more recent ones, Indie Film Blueprint. It's a roadmap for how to plan, shoot, and sell your first indie feature, right? And in addition to that, you've got advanced editing with DaVinci Resolve. You have the art and technique of film editing with Tom Cross, who edited La La Land and No Time to Die. And then you have the educators. I mentioned Tom Cross. They also have Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, and so many more. It truly is the premier place to learn about filmmaking. Now, you get 20% off of your purchase by simply using GCS20 as your promo code, and you can buy individual courses or become an MZ Pro member, which gives you access to all of it, which is that Netflix model like we talked about earlier. So I strongly encourage, check it out gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, MZ, empowering filmmakers. Sarah Paulson has, I mean, she's in like everything. So yeah. she's in both parts of this double feature. She's in impeachment. I imagine it's all happening at the same time. Scheduling must have been a challenge for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, scheduling was like a, was like, uh, you know, our poor production team trying to get everybody working at the same time. Uh, speed. So we had impeachment rolling uh, next to us on a stage in, in at Fox, and then we were on another stage. But Sarah Paulson had the lead in impeachment, and so uh, we had to borrow her from time to time. And it was like one day every two or three weeks. Mm. And so um, as part of that, we had to shoot scenes without her. You know, she could not travel to uh, Provincetown to shoot any of the scenes there, and. You know, to the credit of the production team, when Ryan Murphy saw our cut, he's like, how did you do this? Really? Like, oh, Sarah that must have made you Sarah, feel so good. Yeah, oh, I felt right. He's like, how did you shoot this? Sarah never went to P-Town. Like, how did you do that? And so, you know, it credits them in terms of making this whole thing work where, so there's a scene where, um, you know, Sarah comes out of the house and she's not going to take the pill. Um, they've just broken into the house. And so she, she comes out of the house, which is a double and uh, in P town. And she, and she walks down the street and that's a double in the wide shot. And then we did a close up on stage, like in a stage with just, um, a green screen behind her and we're pulling her a steady cam, um, with her face. And then we did another shot in Ventura where we're outside where we put tree branches over a low angle of her walking up as well. And then uh, we cut to these wide shots of the double again, like getting pushed up against this house uh, in the location. And then we cut into a set that Chloe built in Ventura County outside where she gets pushed up against the doorway. And then we shoot all this coverage um, in, this, in this fake set, which cuts to other shots of Macaulay Culkin, who's walking in from the real location. Anyway, it was this whole mix of like three different locations, some on set, some in P-Town and so forth. Um, and really everybody did a great job in terms of like matching, you know, uh, colors and smoke and, and so forth. And then we did the same thing when, when her and Macaulay um, are watching the Gardner house and they come out, 
and then they and then they walk around the house and and then break in macaulay's footage is all in p-town and all of sarah's footage is on stage at fox so amazing it's it's uh, you know i guess we pulled it off <laughs> i hope so <laughs> you'd never know <laughs> i hope so i love that i mean that's some real old school movie magic i love that stuff i guess so yeah there's a couple but, additional things i oh no go ahead go go yeah no but in terms of in terms of scheduling it was a a big thing sarah had her show impeachment um lily had a feature in the middle of the show that she left to do so it was on and off evan peters was in um, monster so he was not available for some of the stuff so that was a major scheduling nightmare for production Oh my God. Well, there's two other things I want to discuss um, in the part one of American Horror Story double feature. I see here your famous, your favorite fire gag. And I want to oh, know yeah. what that is. That's something that's something that you had brought to us in prep. And I'm like, all right, I, I need to know what this is now. So can you tell the audience what, what your favorite fire gag is? Okay. So, um, so I ran across this idea um, on um, talking through gaffers and stuff like that. But, you know, I've seen as an assistant way back when, I, you know, fire gags were like like two babies or two tweenies and guys like doing this with the dimmers, you know, hand dimmers and whatever. Like sometimes they'd have be a little bit of gel or different color gel. So with our with our LED technology now, um, we took uh, three Helios tubes, right? And Helios tubes, can you can divide them into eight different um pixels, I'll say, right? Eight different sections. And so I had heard of this idea where you could run a video feed through the dimmer board and translate that into essentially 24, like a 24 pixel TV, right? And so you're running a video feed of fire through mm -hmm. 24 pixels, right? And so it's not, you know, it's like less than video game pixels in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what that gave us was <clears throat> essentially you saw the video of fire appearing on Helios tube. So the bottom tube was fairly static. It had a little bit of variation. And then the middle tube had a little bit more. And then the top tube would just pop here and there because the tips of the flames would just barely hit. And so see, we yeah. played with that. And so, um, Johan was our, was our, um, was our dimmer board op. And so he put this program together. We talked about it like weeks in advance. I'm like, Hey, can you try this? Blah, blah, blah. And we test it out different fire video feeds and different, uh, you know, uh, you know, cause he could speed up the video or he could slow it down. And so anyway, that's what we ended up with. And I thought it had a very, um, a very real look because it wasn't. That's so crazy. So you're running video through, am I understanding that right? You're running yeah. video through the Helios tubes. Yeah. That's not, I've never heard of that. That's is that nuts, a right? common use for this? I don't know, but I loved it. So this is just that. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay, so, so I, it's a I'm natural fire pattern. Wow. So you are you're combining three Helios tubes, and that's basically your screen. Yeah. And running a, a video of fire through it, and that's what you mean by the lower pixel resolution because there's only so many pixels represented in the three tubes. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. What yeah. a cool idea. It was. It's. Uh, I loved it. And you know, occasionally we would put two of the. You know, we put two of these little fire gags together. You know, so I thought it came out pretty well. I mean, yeah, it was a that, show, but that's really cool. Oh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, because fire look more was into fire that. was fire was supposed to play a, a bigger role in the storyline, and it kind of it kind of uh, faded a little bit. So anyway, I was super stoked with that, and uh, Gaffer, you know, David Kagan and Johan putting that together. So now you got a big scene with Bell's Massacre, and I'm hearing that it's 96 frames per second. It took quite a, quite a while to get the sequence done. Um, talk to us about that and why you chose 96 frames. What did that do for the scene? Um, so <clears throat> originally it was pitched to do like a big Warner style fight scene where we go from, you know, you have your character. So it was going to be in um, Harry's POV, uh, Finn Whitrock's POV. Um, and he's the protector of his child and fighting for his, for his baby. And, and so originally it was going to be that, and it was going to, we did 96 frames so that they could speed ramp. 
you know, essentially. Mm -hmm. So you could have a slow motion punch and then a, you know, a fast motion, whatever, blood spurt or whatever. And so we shot the whole thing 96 frames. And as you know, Bell's is a rather dark set, um, mm. lit um, primarily by candlelight. You know, there's a giant candelabra that <clears throat> hangs over it. And it's actually based on a real location in Provincetown. And so, you know, in terms of candlelight and ASA, um, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of room for adding two stops of light. So what we ended up yeah. doing there is, um, and the other thing is we had to shoot the sequence like fast. Um, Evan wasn't available and he's one of the people, major characters in the, in the series. And then we had all these stunt players coming in. And uh, so anyway, we, we built this, uh, Chris Garlington built this rig that ran pipes over the whole like main area. And we hung a bunch of um, light mat fours up there some were some were down lights some were cross lights <clears throat> and tons of baffles the key grip and gaffer know that i love baffles so um, almost all the time my lights have snoots and baffles in them and sometimes there'll be a baff like the baffle on edge has diffusion this one doesn't have diffusion so i'm a little bit arts and craftsy that way um and anyway so then we just started shooting the sequence and it was just like calling into johan hey johan take you know elf take, you know, elf, this L4 down, take that one up, warm that one up, cool that one. And it's just like, as soon as the cameras were in position, it was like ready to go. Yeah. Um, and so the 96 frames was mostly, it was f to do the speed ramps, but to accommodate that we had to, we had to light that thing. Like it was exactly. on fire. You, need a, you like, needed a lot more lighting in a scene yeah. that's supposed to be dark. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> if you went onto that set, you'd be like, this is, this is not, bells this doesn't look like that and then you would go back to the video monitor and you'd be like oh yeah it's the same so <laughs> yes you know give, what did give, you or, shoot give or take we had to light a big space without getting too bright so. exactly i want to talk about the camera and lens package for yeah. american horror story double feature what did you end up choosing and, and why um so we went with panavision i have a loyalty to panavision and david dotson there set us up so i chose uh the sony venice um, which I really fell in love with on Hollywood. And um, I, I just believe it has a really good look and it's, and it's mm. sharp and it, it um, anyway, I like it. I like the fact that you can change the, um, uh, the ND filters, like specifically N3 through 2.5 by one mm. degrees instead of like, you know, N3, N9, 1, 5, 2, 1 or something. Yep, yep. Um, You've got that variable ND in there yeah. that actually even goes down into their consumer cameras too. I mean, I've got that in in FS5, the mm. variable ND. It's it's mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, so I love that. Um, and then lens-wise, we went with Panavision Primos. We went with the Primo lightweight zooms, which we um, refer to as one, two, and three. And then we had a long zoom. We had an 11 to one in case we needed to lens in a little bit more. Um, we also ran with, um, a couple of slant focus lenses to give us some of the effects. So we had a 25 and a 50 slant focus lens, which we use for some effects. Now, what uh, does that do? The slant focus? So the slant focus is, you know, you, it's like a tilt shift lens. So you can take your, you can take your focus plane and you can shift it. You know, usually your focus plane is like flat to your sensor. And so you mm -hmm. take it flat to the sensor and then you twist it. Right. So that you could cut focus, you know, through my eye and then cut come out the back of my head, this eye's out of focus, this one's in focus, kind of a deal. Yeah, yeah. So we did that um, several times for some of our our looks. Um, and what else did we have? Anyway, uh, we well, did well, a little bit of lens scene. baby, but not too much lens baby, and then filtration. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, in the second part, uh, Death Valley, which um, is shot in both black and white and color for you know different time periods, and did you do the same camera package for for the whole series? Yes. Okay. So there's a scene when we first meet Amelia Earhart, and it's a, it's a little bit of like this kind of defocusy thing going on in the corner. And I thought to myself, I'm like, is that a lens baby? And I'm curious if it was. <laughs> so no. <laughs> but ah, I, I, see? I, I see why I see why you get that. What so was what that? We, what we did. So that was the day that everybody um, COVID traced that or. Yeah, contact traced out. So that yes. was um, that was Penny Sprague operating that. But what what that was was um, 
I think we just had our number one Zoom, which is the like 15 to 40. And it was a, just a diopter. Yeah. So in terms of the diopter, you get that, you get that um, shallower focus, which we were going for, which is like, because we run a fairly wide lens. And so if you're on a wide lens, it's hard to take your depth of field and like crush it. So we put, yeah. a, I think, a number one diopter on. And I was so happy to see that shot make the final cut because we focused on the, the scars on her back, the little yes. tattoo things. And we stayed there for that entire shot until I um, kneels down into the shot, which I just love that kind of stuff. So, you know, we, we, we track across on a slider and it's all about those scars. And we see this group coming up and the natural thing is as soon as you see the group, oh, rack to the group, right? But yeah. we didn't do it because it was all about uh, Amelia. And we just stayed there until he dropped down in the frame, which I was just super happy about. So anyway, I love that, that too. You, you almost diopter. did the you almost did the reverse. You like didn't focus on them at all. In fact, you made that corner even blurrier. <laughs> so yeah. I really yeah, like that. It, it you know the diopter's got a little bit of shape to it, so the corners the corners really go. Yeah, they stretch and blur. So we used. I mean, even in, in some of our effects, we would do uh, slant focus lens to control focus, and then and then sometimes we would throw in a split diopter. And that would give us like a double reflection of somebody's face when somebody was going through like some um, either results of the pill or fear or something like that. So we were mm -hmm. we were trying all kinds of stuff to make it. Somebody called it the weird or get the weird lens or get the anyway. There was some name that was <laughs> pretty fun. So we, yeah, it must be it must be fun too with. American Horror Story, because you can really go wild. Like there's, yeah. there's no boundaries there. You can, it's certainly rooted in reality of some sort. Like there's a groundedness to it, but you can go way out there in the story and the cinematography and the lighting. It, it, it's gotta be a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, for my first show to do this show, to have uh, three, four looks and to be able to do whatever I wanted. I mean, can you imagine the, the difference between that and like getting some rom-com, you know, yeah. where everybody just needs to look beautiful? So yeah, it's a total privilege for me. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about the second part of this, Death Valley. It's a whole new story. It's uh, four episodes and it opens with uh, an entire black and white, well, not entire, but it, it opens with a, a, a black and white, yeah. which you find out is representative of a certain time period. And then there's some color for present day later on. Um, so talk to me about the choice to shoot black and white, what it means, and also um, the camera decision for that. Because it yeah. sounds like you're using the same camera versus using like an actual, you know, what what is the sensor? Some Somebody has a black and white sensor. I can't yeah, think, so is red, it red? Red, red has a sensor. Black, okay. I think they use that on Mank. So we did a lot of research with that in terms of the black and white and how big of a deal well, we need to make of it because obviously your wardrobe has to have specific um, parameters because if you put like a green and an orange together, they're both going to go gray about the ah, same gray. Okay. So if you, if you shoot with, I mean, we decided to go color sensor because we had it for one and two, let's say you, you had an orange and a gray in your scene. If you're still shooting in color with a black and white LUT, you can grab that green and you can make it darker or you can grab mm -hmm. the orange and make it darker or brighter. You still have that control, but if you shoot in clear black and white there's no more there's no more adjusting you can adjust your contrast and stuff like that but with but with us like we had a green <clears throat> slime that we were using and you could take that green slime and you can make it white or you can make it black because you just grab that color channel and you take the luminance up or down so i huh. my preference if i'm going to ever shoot black and white again which i'd love to do because it's fantastic is to shoot it color with a black and white LUT because you still have that's, control over the color. That's interesting. I never thought about that, but you're but you're right. Mm -hmm. If you don't have color on the ingest, there's nothing to attach onto in post. Um right. or I guess very little. I don't know. A colorist may have a different opinion of that, but um right. but that that that's an interesting. So so for things that you knew you needed to explore more in post. Were you purposely like amplifying that color? Like if if you knew someone's like the slime if you knew that you wanted some flexibility with the slime, were you sort of like exaggerating the green in it so that you had room in post? Uh, I mean, for the slime and stuff like that, yes. So my office at Fox became the testing ground. So it was located right near costumes. So set design, 
built walls of different colors and they put it in my office for the different sets and they would change those out as we moved. And then wardrobe could go in, hang the clothing on the set, take a picture. Um, and you can just do that with your phone, you know, go to film noir on your phone and snap a shot and you'd be like, okay, these colors go, these colors are sure. too flat against each other. Um, so that was kind of our process in terms of color there. I don't know if we ever amplified, um, I don't know if we ever amplified a particular color. Um, like in the old days, the sets would be like oddly weird, odd colors, like Adam's family, you know, like it didn't mm -hmm. even look normal. Um, but so we took like a, an approach somewhere in between, you know. So the second story revolves around aliens. And there's certainly a, a large portfolio of alien themes in visuals and movies, especially in this time with like the talk about aliens, like in 2020, 2021, like all of, all of a sudden everybody's talking about aliens again. <laughs> the, the, the timing is, the timing is unique and interesting. And I think there's a lot of attention put on that kind of world right now. Um, so when you're telling an alien story like this, what are your references to kind of make it feel similar, but something new? Yeah. So the reference that we got from Ryan Murphy was, um, um, I can't remember. Oh, um, <laughs> I can't remember it now. Was it a movie? It's Spielberg's a movie. Show? Close Encounters. Um, Close oh, Encounters. Yes, yes. Close Encounters was his was his reference, right? And there was a little bit of 2001 Space Odyssey in there. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of, um, uh, I can't remember the other movie. Anyway, uh, Close Encounters was the main reference, right? Which is interesting because it's it's that's not black and white. No, um, and it's and it's very warm it's, and saturated. It, yeah, and yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, so what were we you just, taking we just from took it? Then? That, <clears throat> I mean, I think we were taking the the feel of camera work. Like Ryan wanted to do these push push ins on people's faces when they saw interesting things, um, and you see that in the opening sequence with like the young boy, like, "Look, mommy, yeah. there's uh, you know the twisters or whatever," and uh, and so I think we took a little bit more of that than. Um, than the color palette, obviously, because the color palette's black and white. Um, yeah. But what a what a great intro to black and white. Our the very first abduction, you know, of the young boy and the mother, and it's and it's so it's so kind of like Americana. We start out with her singing, yes. and she's just dancing around doing her meal. And uh, one of my favorite shots is her looking out the window, and you know, Timmy, come in, right? It's just it's almost this beautiful. Like I almost think we're in Italy, you know, with mm -hmm. her look. Um, and then all of a sudden it turns, right? You know, and she sees the twisters, and we get a little bit of flashing light, and um, and then off we go on this adventure of, uh, you know, mole beams, you know, splashing light in, and 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 movers, uh, you know, giving us uh, spotlights and so forth, and. For me, that was the uh, the funnest part was like, you know, letting it, letting things blow out, letting things get overexposed, like going to extremes. Um, again, one of my favorite shots during the abduction is like this little army men shaking on the table in yeah. front. And you see her in the background out of focus, like with the wind, like blowing the door open and she's just barely hanging on. Um, anyways, quite an adventure. I don't know what you want me to speak about, about it or... Well, you spoke perfectly about it. I mean, I, I I thought it was really interesting that you employed some kind of old school, like 50s, 40s movies techniques in there. Like it has a nostalgic feel, one of one of which was that kind of like little bit of shaky camera. It's, it's almost like you banged the camera during the autopsy scene, the alien autopsy scene where the slime like jumps into their face and the camera has like this shake to it, but it's not like handheld shake. It's like a jagged hit almost. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, is that where the where the, where it jumps out at the very first time? Yes. Okay. The very first autopsy scene, <laughs> they open up. They open up the alien. They see that yeah. there's nothing inside, <clears throat> but then there is something inside. The slime yeah. that just comes and attacks. But there's there's almost this. Um, it's I can't I can't pinpoint the films I'm talking about, but it feels nostalgic in a way. The way that the camera moves in that scene to make you yeah. feel scared. I honestly can't reference that because I missed two days of work because I was skateboarding and hurt my back. Oh <laughs> so no! My A camera, my A camera operator Mike Vehar shot that. 
That's <laughs> so, so I'm funny. Not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they were hitting the camera or who was operating. Actually, that I'm That's pretty sure funny. that was the hand, the handheld footage inside the um, surgery room. We've shot. I have shot there before, but I wasn't there for that particular day. What um, happened? Right, it's skateboarding, man. <laughs> the simplest stuff, right? Takes oh, you, you must have been so, so mad. You're like, I'm DPing a series. What? What am I doing? I know. <laughs> But then oh, again, you no. have to you have to live a little bit too. So I, you know, that it was is like, true. Anyway, that was well. The odd, last thing I want to talk about yeah. is exactly the last. And I'm, you're better now, I assume. Yeah, thank you. Good. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is um, filters. Yeah. Uh, as I'm watching it in both, but for some reason I, I noticed it more in um, in death uh, in the Death Valley Part Two in the black and white scenes in particular is this blooming in the highlights. Yeah. And um, I'd like to talk to you about the filters you used and why and what that did to the visuals. Okay, so in the so we switched our filters. Um, the first six were shot with uh, Black Promised, and Quarter Black Promised as the basic. Mm -hmm. And then in the Death Valley series, we went to Black and White was Black Frost, right? Mm. And so we had why? Black Frost. Why did you switch them up? Because of the bloom. We tested mm. for the bloom. We wanted we wanted a bright bloom. I wanted to overexpose the whites. I wanted it to. I wanted the. I wanted the. <clears throat> the latitude of the film to be a little bit tighter. So you know, so six or seven stops, you hit white, and then on the other end, you hit black, and not and not as much in between. Um, so when you got those whites, you got a little bit of a of a glow around it, and you see that in Amelia Earhart in the hospital room. You see that during the uh, um, abduction scenes. We also would add in a, a <clears throat> occasionally a promist, you know, so we'd have a black frost and a and a regular promist, which I think has a um, <clears throat> whatever they put in there is 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 not of a dark nature; it's a lighter nature, and it blooms mm. even more. Um, so we we'd have some combo packs. We we shot with um, the Mitchell series, um, which is an older series, and one of the things that I found which is good to know is somebody's remaking the Mitchell series, the Mitchell A, B, and C. And the, I, I think when you, when you do that, you need to match your, um, your old and new. So we had old filters and new filters, and I'm not quite sure that they were completely matching. So hmm. just check that out. <laughs> but anyway, so the Black out. Frost brought the bloom, which I loved. I love the bloom. Um, almost like, almost like you're shooting with a, with a lens that doesn't have a very good coating or, or it's not polished right. And so you get a little bit of an edge, um, uh, like an aberration or a reflection or, you know, some, something that wasn't perfect um, yeah. for that time. But that was kind of, that was so, our formula. It looks so good. <laughs> and on the skin too, like I love, because the alien abduction, you got to have that big light. You have to have that big spotlight that just blows everything out. <laughs> and, um, that was it. I was just a like the way that that, that struggle looked. too. <laughs> what was the struggle? The struggle was getting the right gear because um, we wanted mole beams and they weren't available. So mm. we had to struggle with budget and 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 other things. So we ended up <clears throat> like in the the abduction in the in the desert on a car ended up being um, um, like a, a mover, like a theater light that you can control really? beam. Yeah, we had other sources that were like open face HMIs, but we couldn't we couldn't get the beam tight enough, so we ended up going to a mover, um, full brightness. I bumped the ISO higher than I would want to, and uh, that gave us that look. And then <clears throat> later for like the Wyckoff, the intro that we got our mole beams and and which is just they're beautiful for that. I love stuff like that. It's and it's crazy to hear that there's budget issues on a Ryan Mer Murphy project. It seems like how could there should never be, there should never be budget issues on his stuff. <laughs> At this point, I would like to think God. I would like to think that too. <laughs> I know. Oh my God. Well, it was really a pleasure talking with you, Andrew. And the the show is American Horror Story, double feature. Um, I believe by the time this episode comes out, the entire series is out there. And uh, it's on FX. So you guys can check it out for yourself. But such a great show and really a fun conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. All right, I want to thank Andrew Mitchell, Director of Photography for American Horror Story Double Feature for coming on the show and talking to us all. You guys definitely check out the show. It is awesome. You know who else is awesome? 
Connor Crosby. He produces the show and makes it so good. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, as well as your favorite podcast apps so you never miss an episode. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And of course, if you want to follow me, you can find me on Instagram at Ben Consoli, at Ben Consoli. Thank you all for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.